If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and, and grab it. If you don't have one, we actually have some available. If you, if you need one, they are in the back. If you raise your hand, somebody will grab one and bring it to you. This morning, we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 22. We're going to be looking at this parable of Jesus called the parable of the wedding feast. Uh, you should know at this point, Jesus is engaging still with uh, the chief priests and the Pharisees. Uh, he's teaching on the kingdom of heaven, and he's, and he's setting it today around uh, the subject of a wedding, and specifically a wedding feast. Uh, we need to recognize that this parable occurs in the context of the last week of Jesus' life. Uh, I think that's important to note. Like he's, what that means is that the crowd who gathered just a few days before this, shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, those same people within a few days are going to be the same folks yelling, crucify him, crucify him. So he's teaching today, not from just a point of, of, of abstraction in his story. He's teaching with a, with a view of the cross that's coming before him. Like it's, it's there. He knows it. It's going to be happening within just a few, a few days. A turn is going to happen in the, mid, in the middle of what we would call the original Holy Week. Uh, that's where we find this parable of the kingdom. And so what I'd ask you to do is stand with me now, and we're going to, we're going to hear from the Lord. I, I told you last week uh, that we stand for the reading of the word because it's the king speaking to us. We stand because there is nothing that's going to be more important said this morning than what you're about to hear from the Word of God. Another reason is that we come here and we stand to practice actively engaging. And, and I mean this as honestly as I can say it. You did not come here this morning for story time with me. If you did, you're going to be sorely disappointed. Okay, you, you came here to commune with, to actively engage with the Word of God. You came to participate in a service of worship. That's why we have sung. That's why we have confessed. And so it's why we stand together now to hear the word of the Lord. So let's, let's actively focus on hearing from him. This is Matthew 22, starting in verse 1. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. But they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully and killed them. The king was angry And he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out onto the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called, but few are chosen. Let's pray together. 
Father, we're not praying right now because we don't have anything else to do and we're not praying right now because it's what you're supposed to do. God, we're pausing to pray right now because we need you. Uh, We will admit that or, or, or I will admit that on our behalf that we need you this morning. God, we need you to come and speak to us. We need you to come because we come in here not ready to hear you. We come in here with lots of baggage. We come in here with with the stains of this week still showing. And so I pray that you would, in this moment, that you would remove those things from us. God, I pray that you would open our blind eyes that we might see you. I pray that you would unstop our deaf ears that we might hear from you. God, I pray that you would awaken our souls, that you would make us alive by your Spirit, that we might know you, or that we might love you, and that we might commune with you here. So Lord, speak to us now. Speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now please, be be seated. The the characters in the parable are are numerous, all right? We're going to work through them a little bit. First, we have a king who, who gave a wedding feast. That's the first one. You've got a king. The second is we have his son for whom the wedding feast is being given. So those are the first two characters. All right, we have a, we have a king uh, who's also a father, and we have his son. All right, and that sounds simplistic, and I know we just read it, but we need to remember that. The third set of characters that we see there are, are his servants. That's, that's those being sent with the invitation. They were given a specific task to do. Go and invite people to the wedding feast. The fourth group of people, the fourth character to be introduced is the group that we see in, in verse 3 referred to as those who were invited. So we have the servants going and inviting. We have those who are being invited. And, and, and what we need to understand is, is that when, when we're talking about a king, right, and we're talking about his servants going out, then, then the king has a kingdom. And so then what we know is that those who are being invited are really more like being summoned. You see, when the king sends an invitation, it's not so much an invitation as it is a, as a command, It's come and be here, be with us. So they weren't so much invited as they were summoned. You know, when you get a save the date in the mail for for a wedding, that wedding season is about to happen. We've got two in March related just to Rivercrest. March has been a fun month so far. It's going to, it started well, it's going to end well. We got another one coming up in just a couple weeks, right? It's going to be a lot of fun. Weddings are beautiful, but when you get a save the date from that friend or, or perhaps that that like distant niece or nephew, right? Um, that, that you haven't seen in a while, but they maybe came to your kid's wedding a few years ago. And so now there's some obligation that you still have a choice to make. When you get that save the date, there's a choice to make. You get to decide whether or not you are going to go there. The implication here, again, is less like an invitation. It's the king didn't send a save the date. He sent a be here. They were beckoned to the wedding feast. And so then in verse three, we see that he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but, but they would not come. And we need to be careful there that that doesn't just sound like they had other things going on. Like it wasn't a busy weekend for them in the kingdom. It's, it's a refusal to come. They're being invited. They're being beckoned. They're being called. They're being even told right now, hey, you got your say the date. Now I'm reminding you, come to the wedding. And they're refusing to come. The summer that Laurie and I graduated from USC, we were involved in seven 
uh, different weddings, seven different weddings in one summer. And so one of them was ours, right? So that was a, uh, that one didn't really count. I mean, that, we kind of had that date set aside, okay? We're, we're going we're gonna to be involved in our own wedding for sure. Uh, but that meant that six out of the next eight weeks, six out of the next eight weeks, we were going to be in different weddings. It is not an exaggeration to tell you that our first struggle as a married couple was directly related to the purchase of four uh, completely unique and, and basically unusable after the date uh, bridesmaid dresses, right? Um, that was, I'm, we laugh, but I'm, I'm serious, okay? It, that was a real challenge. Um, we, we, we needed some help making it through that, okay? That, that was a, we had to budget accordingly after that first summer. In the case of our parable, it's not that they have uh, misplaced the invitation. It's not that they didn't get the right, the right date or the right place. It, in, in our house, all the temp- invitations go on a string right beside our back door. They go right, you, if you walk into our house, you will see all the invitations. That's because we used to put them in another place, and every once in a while they'd fall down behind the dryer. And, uh, and when, you, when you start doing weddings, uh, that's a bad thing, right? For that to, if, if you get a call one day that, hey, you know, we're getting ready to start, perhaps you would join us. Uh, that's, that's not a good day. So we said we need to step up our invitation game, make sure we put them places where they're not going to fall down because I, I, I like to have things prepared. If you know me, I like, I'm, I'm, I like details to be right. So Laurie's hung them up by the door. They've now become a decoration in our home. And because of y'all and Snapfish, decorations are so attractive now that they, they, they help us with that. that we, we, we don't want to lose the invitation. Now, um, this isn't just any wedding that we're talking about, though, in this parable. This isn't just your cousin who's getting married in Albuquerque, okay? This is, I don't know why I said Albuquerque. I don't even know a soul in Albuquerque, but that's, um, I definitely don't have a cousin there, right? These people didn't misplace their invitation. It did not fall down behind the dryer. They are refusing. I need you to embrace this. They are refusing to go to the wedding. They don't want any part of it. They don't want to go. It's not that they can't come, it's that they're choosing not to. And so more than not showing up, what, what they're doing here is they're making a statement. By not going, they're making a statement of rebellion. They are rebelling against the king. And then we see the response. Look at verse four. We see the response of the king and it's striking because, just listen, it says, again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see. He's telling them, look, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. So here we see a glimpse of the patience of the king. We get a sense here that he genuinely wants them. He wants them to come to the feast. You see, he wants them so, there so badly that, that he's actually sent other servants. He's taking for granted. Maybe you did lose the invitation. Maybe it did fall down. Maybe you're going to find it a month from now and go, uh-oh. No, he... he he sends other servants and says, come. Maybe you've forgotten, but today's the day. Everything is ready. Come to the feast. You guys are invited to the party of the year. Listen, when the king throws a party, that's a party you want to go to. The food has been prepared, and it's not just any food. This is the best food. It's the fattened calves. This is literally like putting catered by Sheely's on the bottom of your wedding invitation. Okay, come, it's gonna be good, right? This is worth your time. He wants them there. He's pulling out all the stops. He's preparing the best food that the kingdom has to offer. 
And he's ready to welcome the men. Look at verse 5. Look at this. But they paid no attention. And they went off, one to his farm, another to his business. Another translation says that they made light of it and they went away. And look, they didn't go to another party. They went to work. Or they went back to their homes and sat there doing, doing nothing. It was, no, it was of no concern to them. They did not care. In their minds, they had better things to do, more pressing things to do. And that's the best of the bunch. The best of them just went away. We're told in verse 6 that the rest, okay, the rest of them, you could fill that in yourself, seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. If you think back to the parable of the tenants in chapter 21, you'll see some parallels. This is precisely how the tenants treated the servants of the rich man in that parable. Jesus is here thematically demonstrating uh, the rebellious nature of people against God. And these people were ruthless. And so what we're seeing here is a glimpse. We're we're given this picture of this broken relationship between the king and his people. There's a fracture in this relationship. it's, it's, It's rife with animosity. And it's a relationship that has become toxic to the point that they're willing at this point to actively rebel. The refusal to come to the wedding feast is is a declaration that they do not want to be subjects of the king. That they don't want their identity to be attached to him. They want to be independent from him. They do not want this relationship. And there's a word that we have for this. When we're talking about a king and we're talking about a refusal to do what the king says, there's, <clears throat> the word that we use for that is called treason. They are treasonous. They are rebels and not the good kind, okay? Not Star Wars rebels. These are bad rebels. These are the rebels who, who are actually wrong. And so after the initial patience that we see displayed, after the willingness to send other servants to go and get them, to basically beg those who were invited to attend, we now see a different response in verse 7. In verse 7 it says, After they seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them, we're told that the king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. All right, so what we see there is that the time for patience has, has come to an end. The king has endured it to this point, but he's had enough. And the result is catastrophic for the rebels of the kingdom. And that's the first section of the parable. But before we move to the second section of the parable, I want to make sure that we unpack this a little bit, just to be sure that we're on the same page, because it's going to be imperative that we understand the first part in order to grasp the second part. And so we're going to to identify the characters and and who they represent. The first is the king. Uh, The king is clearly representative of God. Uh, It doesn't take a whole lot of intellectual energy to get there. It's pretty clear that that's who he is. Um, And and so then we also have the son. Now, the second character, who's only mentioned one time, is is just called the son. And so if God is the king, if he is the father, then it's safe to understand that that the son is representing Jesus in the parable. Uh, The king's servants represent those throughout history those throughout history who have offered the gospel invitation. This, this includes the prophets of old, and I will contend that it includes uh, the apostles in the New Testament and also the New Testament church today. Those who were invited symbolize uh, specifically the, the, the nation of Israel or God's chosen people. They, they, were, they were the subjects of the king. They were his people. They were, they were God's people. He's the one who had, if you recall your, your Old Testament history at all, 
that he's the one who set them apart in Abraham. He's the one who, who built them up through the lives of the patriarchs. He's the one who, who liberated them out of Egypt, right? Out of the house of slavery. He had carried them into the promised land with his mighty hand and his outstretched arm. This is their story. These are, these are the subjects. They have been witnesses to, to his great faithfulness. They can point back and go, not the Old Testament people, us. That was them. So they are, they are the subjects. They are the ones who were invited. <clears throat> They've seen it. But in history, they have rejected his rule. They have rejected his reign. And so while they held the invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb, while they had that invitation in their hand, they chose to reject that invitation. And in so doing, they have rebelled against and rejected the king. And they were the ones who killed the messengers of the Lord. They had humiliated the prophets. And Jesus is here giving them a picture of what's coming. Okay, Unlike the patience and the long suffering of the king uh, the first time, the Lord is now sending his troops to destroy those murderers and to burn their cities. Most commentators agree that this is, a, this is only a thinly veiled allusion to the destruction of Jerusalem in, in 70 AD by the Roman Empire. And that tells us a lot about what's coming for the people who choose to reject the king. It goes badly for them, but that's not the end of the parable. It doesn't, it doesn't stop there because despite the rebellion against the king by those who were invited, despite the fact that he went and destroyed those murderers and burned their city, there's still a wedding feast that's going to happen. See, the food has still been prepared. Look back at verses 8 through 10 real quick. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready but those invited were not worthy. Go, go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out onto the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. Listen, we cannot forget that in spite of everything that could happen, everything that might happen, and everything that should happen in this world, the wedding feast is going to happen. The marriage supper is going to happen. Remember, it was the king who said, I have prepared. He's saying, it's ready now. The food's cooked. We don't have, we, we're not waiting to see who's going to show up. The food is prepared. My dinner, my oxen, and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. It is ready now. And he says, come to the wedding feast. He's saying, the table is set. The meal is prepared, and he is going to find some guests to come to this celebration. And so the servants go out to the main roads. Did you catch, catch that? They went to the main roads. These are the roads that are outside of the city limits. They say, go out to the highways. Go out into the distant areas, the, the parts that are, that are less recognizable. Go out away from home. Stretch yourselves. Go to the places that you don't even know and invite everyone. It's like sending them out to the, that sounds a lot like sending them out to the ends of the earth, right? That sounds like go to all the nations Go out to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. We talk about the great commission of Jesus a lot. In fact, we talk about that in the church all the time. This is a pre-commission. It's go out to the main roads. Go out and find everyone you can find and invite them. He says, we're having a party. Go find me some guests. Go find me some people to come and celebrate. And so they go and they do as they're directed. They go out, they invite everybody they find. It says that they gathered all whom they found. All whom they found both bad and good. I, I love that. They, they were indiscriminate. 
They, they, didn't invite, they didn't invite specific people. They didn't check what you were wearing. They didn't check how, how, you, how you spoke. They didn't do background checks. There was no spiritual gifts test to come into the family meal at that point, okay? It was just, if, just come. Just come and eat with the king. They invited all whom they found, both bad and good. And then the last words of verse 10 sound like the conclusion. We were told that the wedding hall, did you see that? Look at 10. The wedding hall was filled with guests. And that's a good story. I mean, if that was the end of the parable, that is a good story. Everything you need. There were characters, right, that we care about. There was a conflict in there that made it a story worth telling. There was a happy ending to wrap it all up. They're all in the wedding hall. They're celebrating. And so this is a good ending. But that's not the end. Look at verse 11. The wedding hall is filled with guests, but when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. And that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Okay, so here's the twist, right? I mean, this thing went from a happy ending to not a happy ending. And listen, if we understand part one of the parable, which is why we spent some time there, if we understand part one of the parable, then we should understand that part two wouldn't be just all they lived happily ever after. You see, if we understand that part one of the parable culminates in the destruction of Jerusalem, And part two culminates in the wedding supper of the Lamb. Then we understand that the period of time in verses 8 through 14 is actually right now. This is our day. We're in it. It's the age of the church. And only one who is completely disconnected from reality, only one who is absolutely blind to what is happening around them, would believe that this present age is anything close to happily ever after. And so we're forced to deal with the fact that there's a reality here, that not everyone who is invited to come to the wedding feast, and not even everyone who shows up and walks inside, gets to eat the meal. And the way that Jesus describes this is to say that those who who lack the proper wedding garment, they lack the proper clothing. Those are the ones who will not be welcomed. In fact, we're told that they will be bound hand and foot and cast into the outer darkness. And then we're told in describing that place, that in that place, in the outer darkness, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Everybody nods like, yeah, that sounds bad. And that's really all we know. Weeping and gnashing of teeth sounds terrible. On my wedding day, all the groomsmen were getting dressed. Uh, I was putting on the tuxedo, because uh, that's what we wore back then. We weren't as hip as they are now. I was putting on the tuxedo. I used to have hair, right? And get all of that, just each, each one just right. Um, it takes less time to get each one right now. My friends are all getting ready. We're all in this room. Um, everyone had been measured. I mean, you know this. You, you remember this, right? You go get measured for your tux. We'd been fitted 
So you go and get measured, then you go back and it doesn't fit, right? And so then they fix it and then you get to leave with the tuxedo. This is what happens. And so we were all, we were all ready to go. And, and right as I was starting to button up the shirt, I kid you not, I can, I can envision this in my mind. I can replay this in my mind just, just like it happens right now. I, I'm, I'm, I'm buttoning the shirt and the door opens and I look up and I see uh, one of my groomsmen, one of my, one of my best friends, a guy named Eric. Uh, he walks in, he is fully dressed already. I mean, he's ready to go. I mean, looks fantastic, Okay wearing this spectacular, I mean, just breathtakingly awesome, three-piece blue, light blue leisure suit. It was, it was stunning. I mean, it really was a vision to behold. It was just a fantastic outfit. And in that moment, just like the man in the parable, everybody who was with us in the room, we were speechless. Because, and, and, and while not all of you know me very well, um, this should be obvious, that was not the right outfit. He did not have the right wedding garment. He lacked the proper wedding attire. He wasn't dressed for the wedding, and I'm pretty sure that our wedding director, who I have done lots of weddings with since, was ready to cast him out into the outer darkness, okay? Of course, in the end, he put on the right suit, and and the rest of us got a good laugh, and I got an illustration. Here, Here in our passage, all right, the wedding garment is representative. We're not talking about a literal piece of clothing. It's not about the right suit. It's not about the right outfit from the right store in the right color. No, no, whatever the garment is in this parable, whatever it represents, whatever the garment is pointing us to, is not just some external facade. It's not just a decoration. No, it's representative of an internal identifier for the true guests of the wedding feast. And we see this today. I mean, look, we know, we know that not all those who claim the name of Jesus are true disciples. And we know this. Some of the worst things that we see happening in the public sphere today are, are being called churches. And we know that that's not a true branch of Jesus' church because it's filled with hate and bigotry and evil. There's no way that that could be what we're supposed to look like. I did a pretty good job of not mentioning anybody specific in that. You can do your own research. But there are branches that call themselves the church that are not the church. They're not. Not everyone who shows up knows the Lord. They're, they're like this man, all right? Let's take today, for instance. It is possible that someone here has, has shown up. They, maybe they saw our little sign by the road, or they received an invitation, or, or, or someone. They have come in here. They, like, like they stand at the right time. They sting, sing at the right time. They, they say the right words at the right time because we put them on the screen. And, but ultimately, we know that it's possible to come and do all this and remain apart from the kingdom. When I go to Augusta National to watch the golf club, I am not a member. In fact, I, I eat my pimento cheese sandwich and they kick me out. No, you, you see, it's possible to do all of this every single week, to come here, to, to, to sing the songs, to, 
to, to even lead, to be perfectly honest, it's, it's, it's entirely possible for somebody to come and lead you in music every week and have no idea about the Jesus whom they're singing about. Because they haven't been clothed with the wedding garment. And so you and I, we should be asking at this point, if we are sitting there with Jesus and he's teaching us this parable, we should be asking of ourselves, especially since we find ourselves here today, we should be asking, what is the wedding garment? We should be wondering what this man is lacking. Why is this one not welcome there? What is he missing? Why is he being cast in the outer darkness? In Zechariah chapter 3, I know, I know not a lot of people have been reading Zechariah this week, but if you have, then you'll, you'll recognize this. The prophet Zechariah is given a vision. He's given a vision of exactly what Jesus is talking about here. And, he, and what he says is that he saw this. So I want you to just... Imagine for a second, Zechariah is given this vision. I want you to visualize this. You you see Joshua, the high priest. And we don't know exactly what he looks like, but just picture a man. And and, and he looks like he's fancy because he's the high priest, right? And he's he's standing before an angel. And he's clothed with what Zechariah calls. In his vision, he saw him and he's clothed in in what he calls filthy garments. Okay? He's he's there and and he looks... Nasty. The word there in Hebrew for filthy is, is the word so-e. Uh, so-e is how you say it. And it reminds me of shoe right? I mean, that's how my kids would say, ugh, right? That's what my, my little, my four-year-old says, shoe every time he sees something nasty, okay? That's, that's what he reminds me of. So you remind him, he looks shoe He looks yuck. This is a man there. There's an angel, and normally we don't see angels as yuck, but there's Joshua the high priest, and he looks yuck, filthy. He's dirty, he's defiled, he's despicable, right? And then something happens in, in this vision. We're, we're told that, in fact, let me just, we're told that the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. So the angel said, remove the filthy garments from him, take them away. And to him, this is the one with the filthy garments, to Joshua, he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity I have taken your iniquity from you and I will clothe you with what he calls pure vestments. You see, the filthy garments represent his iniquity. The filth on the outside represents the filth on the inside. And God takes that iniquity. The angel takes it and he, and he takes that sin. He takes that yuck away from him. He takes it. But he doesn't leave him naked. Did you catch that? He doesn't leave him naked. He doesn't leave him in embarrassment. He doesn't leave him in shame. No, shame. no you see, he, he clothed him with what he calls pure vestments. That's what the angel did. He took the, took the filthy garments, clothed him with pure vestments. We don't use the word vestments a lot. Some, some translations call these festal robes. Festal. That sounds, that sounds like a celebration, right? something festive, something you might wear, like, say, to a wedding, to celebrate, like wedding garments. You see, there's an exchange here that's taking place. It's what we would call, uh, in theological terms, what we call double imputation. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not just that God takes your filth away. That's not all it is. Now, he does that, okay? Paul tells us that for our sake, he made him who, who knew no sin to be sin, Okay? Okay, so on the cross, Jesus took, uh, he took my sin. He took your sin. Are you not fooling anybody? I know you come in here a sinner just like I do. 
Whether you've got the best suit on or you've got a volunteer t-shirt, it does not matter. You came in here just as filthy as I come in here. Jesus took our sin. He took my sin upon himself. He took my debt. He paid my penalty. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. He suffered in our place. Jesus paid for your sin, every single one of them. But that's not all he did. And so Peter continues. He says, For Christ suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that we, that's you and I, that we, actually, I, I want to I say it exactly right. He says that he might bring us to God. He suffered once, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring us to God. Paul continues the same thing. He said, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see what he's doing there? It's not just that he takes our guilt away. It's that he gives us something too. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The the prophet Isaiah told us of this exchange in Isaiah 61 where he said, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. You see, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ here being presented in a parable. This is the good news. It's that in spite of the fact that we are the ones, that you and I are the ones in filthy rags, unable to cleanse ourselves, powerless to cleanse ourselves. In spite of that, God loves us. And he doesn't just love us from a distance. Like he doesn't go, yeah, I love you. Stay there. No, he, no, he comes to us. He said Jesus came to us and he took our filthy rags He took our filthy rags upon himself. He took our robe of sin and death, our robe of pain and suffering, our robe of guilt and shame. He took that robe upon himself. And he doesn't leave us there, but he clothes us in his robe of righteousness. You see, he exposes us, but he does not reject us. And he didn't just send the servants, but he came himself to the main roads. He came himself to where the outsiders are, to where we are. And he comes and he invites us to his feast. It is the most one-sided exchange in history. It's our rags for for his riches, and, and it can't be faked. You can't just pretend this, because it's not about what's on the outside. You see, it's our filthy garments for his festal robe, for his robe of righteousness. And so we stand here today, not in our own righteousness, but in his. It's a righteousness that we receive by grace, that we receive through faith. And this is not our own doing, right? This is the gift of God so that no one may boast, except for my only boast now is in Christ because he's done it all for me. That word boast in the New Testament, we think of it as bragging. That's that's really a wrong interpretation of that word. It's more like if you've ever seen an army and, and, and probably you haven't because we don't fight like this anymore. But if you've ever watched an old movie, like, like a Braveheart-style movie, where the, the armies are lined up apart from one another, and they start to shout, and they say, that's the boast. It's the victory cry that says, we are going to win before we even fight the battle. That's what our boast is in Christ. It's that the victory's been won. 
My boast is not in my own cleanliness, I promise you. It is only in Christ's righteousness. And that's why that, that's what we walk in outside of here. You see, that's why he talks about a robe, because you take your robe with you. We've been clothed in that. We walk in the scandalous truth today that Jesus died for us, that we might have life in him. And so if you've trusted in Christ for your eternal life, your, your invitation to the feast, it cannot be lost. Okay, it's not going to fall down behind the dryer. You're not going to miss the party. Your RSVP has been received. Your place is set at the table with your name on it. You will not miss the party. But if you've not trusted in Christ for your eternal life, I want, you, I want to encourage you here today to hear the call, to take the step, to, to give your life to the one who has given his life for you. You see, you're invited. We're inviting you today. We're inviting you to the wedding feast. Come and eat. We want you there. 1 John 1 says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to, please don't miss this, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You need to take that step. You need to give your life to him. And some of us, maybe we need to re-give it to him. Maybe you went through the water one day a long time ago and so you think you're covered and that's good, but maybe we need to walk in righteousness this week, covered in the festal robe of our Lord and Savior. Basically, this parable says, get dressed. The robe of Christ's righteousness is offered to you. And, and I want to tell you this, it's going to be a magnificent party. The fattened calves, the oxen have already been slaughtered. The meal has been prepared. We really don't want you to miss it. Let's pray together. Jesus, you do what we can't. You love the unlovable. Uh, You sacrifice for those who have nothing to give. You have taken our robe of filth, our robe of shame, our robe of sorrow, the robe that we hate. God, you've taken the parts of us that we hate and you've taken those upon yourself. And in exchange, you don't leave us there ashamed. God, you don't leave us there wallowing around wondering what in the world to put on. You have clothed us with your robe of righteousness. Just like Joshua the high priest, you have taken our iniquity And you have given us your glory. Father, help us to walk as people who believe that. Help us to go to work tomorrow as people who believe that. Help us to raise our children as people who believe that. Help us to love our spouses as people who believe that. As people who know that they've been shown more grace than we could ever possibly repay. God, forgive my failing in that. I pray that you would empower us this week, Lord. Whether whether somebody's just visiting here this morning or whether they're one of the committed folks who's chosen to be here every week, God, I pray that as, as one body, as the church in a thousand locations across this globe, that we would live to this week as your disciples. 
And that by the way we live, by the way we move, by the way we talk, by the way we speak, by the way we engage, people would know you through us. God, let my life point others to you. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.